0: There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome Welcome to to Twisted Twisted Philly. Philly. several highways that links Philadelphia to the suburbs hundreds of thousands of commuters travel that road every day on June 20th 1996 at 2 o'clock in the morning an off-duty ambulance crew spotted an abandoned car along an exit ramp of 476 the engine was running the lights were on the radio was blaring the driver's door was open But no one was inside. Hey Twisters, what up? It is officially allergy season out here in Twisted Philly, so if I sound especially nasal, please forgive me, we can blame it on my inferior sinuses and the ragweed and hay fever that are plaguing me and will continue to do so probably through until Halloween. Out of the gate, I need to tell you that this is a hard episode for me to share. I'm skipping the what-ups this week, I'm skipping some of the usual friendly yet sarcastic and smart-ass banter that I share at the top of an episode, because this is a story I've struggled with telling. My dread doesn't come from anything about the victim or the murderer, although what happened in this story is absolutely dreadful. It comes from my own self-absorbed presence of mind, not a current state of mind, but a state of mind on the afternoon of June 20th, 1996. I'm gonna start by giving you a little backstory which is something I often do but this time the backstory is mine and yeah you know I, I thought a little bit about well do I need to tell the story now maybe I could wait and share it in a few months or in a few years God willing I'm still creating episodes of Twisted Philly and you're still listening but this is an anniversary year in this case actually the anniversary was this summer and so for me for that reason it, it had to have been done now probably should have been done sooner than today In the 90s um, i was very active in local theater yeah i was the kid in high school who was in all the plays and the same thing and all the plays in junior high and for you millennials if you've never heard of junior high go ask your parents because in the 80s we had never heard of middle school so we would have been like what the fuck is that in june 1996 i was living in fort washington that's a suburb to the north and a little west of philadelphia it's down the street actually from chestnut hill which we just talked about in haunted hill and the theaters where i worked I call it work but you didn't get paid for it I mean it was a labor of love without pay but lots of joy they were in Delaware County and one in particular was just outside of Southwest Philadelphia so on average it was about an hour commute from where I lived or where I worked to this community theater and that was on a good day and the primary road that I took to get to southern Delaware County was the Blue Route the Blue Route is also called 476 and I'm gonna try to stick to calling it the blue route but I can guarantee I'm gonna slip back and forth and refer to it as that or 476 now this road was about 75 percent of my journey and to this day when you're heading south on the blue route in the summer especially on a Thursday or even worse a Friday you're gonna sit for a while it's shore traffic and if you're not from the area that's what we call the beaches in New Jersey the shore we head to the shore this particular day in June on the 20th back in 1996 was just before a performance weekend or really close to performance weekend and getting to the theater on time was incredibly important not just to the rest of the company but especially to me and I do remember that I had taken a half day at work, so I could leave really early and get down to Delaware County long before rehearsal would start. And I could either hang out at a local mall or go to the theater early and just make sure that everything I needed was set up and ready to go. But my best laid plans fell to shit. I was stuck on the Blue Route for hours. And the closer I got to Delaware County and my exit, which was the Springfield Lima exit, the backup got worse. It was unbelievable. And i remember i called my ex-husband who at the time was my boyfriend and was complaining to him and he gave me a lecture like you know what that road's like just chill out you'll get there eventually to this day he's still the most laid-back person i know i called the theater i left a message probably saying something like i'm stuck on the blue route which was common and even with all the extra time i'd given myself i spent most of it sitting on the highway as i got closer to my exit i could tell that there was something going on and the cars were barely inching along We'd move for a few feet and then stop for a while and then inch along again like a caterpillar. And eventually I was right up next to where the entrance was for the exit, but it had been closed. And as you looked further ahead, there was a blue car pulled off on the shoulder further down the exit lane. And there were police officers walking around in the grass the sides of this road the blue route especially in this area and the sides of the exit ramps are kind of heavy dense wooded areas and abandoned cars were a common sight along this highway and you know to a lesser extent they still are right somebody's got a car they can't make the payment anymore or whatever reason they need to ditch it I'm sure you probably see these things in other cities too it's not uncommon to see abandoned cars along a highway maybe not in an exit ramp but from what I saw it looked like there was absolutely no reason to have shut down the exit. Exit. the car was far enough onto the shoulder that there was plenty of room for other cars to get past it and so that's what I'm thinking right I'm sitting in my car I'm ranting and raving and I see this abandoned car and I guess some idiot abandoned a car again on the blue route somebody maybe found some drugs or some other stupid shit and now here I am stuck for hours I saw an impediment to my plans I saw a nuisance I saw something that was a pain in my ass deterring me from what I wanted to do, God forbid, making me late for where I wanted to be. But the police that walked around that car saw something very different. They saw a bloody tire iron in front of the car. They saw a pool of blood. They saw a crime scene. They saw what would surely become someone's worst nightmare. And for the Willard family of Delaware County, Pennsylvania, that's what this was their worst, most terrifying, and heart-wrenching nightmare. Late that night when I got home, I turned on the TV, and I was always wired after rehearsal. And I knew I wouldn't be able to sleep for a while, so that was typically what I did. I would get home, I would turn on the TV, see if any of the news channels were still on, and I was channel surfing, breezing past local news channels, and I caught a glimpse of that same scene I'd passed earlier in the day, the abandoned car on 476. And that's when I'd learned I had driven past a crime scene. I had driven past a murder scene of a beautiful, bright young woman who was missing. And I was sitting on the floor in front of the TV, all the lights were off, just the glow from the TV screen in my living room. I mean, we we had furniture. It's just something I did, and I still do. You know, if it's late at night and I'm the only person awake, I sit on the floor to watch TV with no lights on. And that night, as I watched the news and learned who Amy Willard was, I cried. I cried for Amy Willard, I cried for her family, and I cried a little bit for my own selfish, self-absorbed perspective as I'm doing right now, 20 years later. When I should have been bearing witness to the last few hours of where someone spent their life, I was instead wrapped up in my own wants and my own needs and my own bullshit that I ranted and raved in my car, throwing a temper tantrum about being late And I can't blame it on being young, because, yeah, this was 20 years ago, but I was 26, almost 27, and I should have known better. And 20 years later, it still bothers me. Amy Willard is the reason that for the past 20 years, every time I pass a car on the side of the road, I say a prayer for whomever is pulled over, for whomever may have left that car on their own or against their will. It's 20 years later, and there is a little part of me inside that hates myself a little bit for that selfishness so yeah i'm um i'm struggling a little bit right now and there's a huge part of me that wants to re-record this it doesn't want you to hear my voice cracking and shaking because i'm trying to hold back tears so amy if you're able to listen to podcasts from heaven i hope you're okay with me telling your story Around 2 a.m. on June 20th, back in 1996, two off-duty EMTs found an abandoned blue Honda Civic on the side of an exit ramp of Route 476, which is also known as the Blue Route. And this exit ramp was right at the edge of Marple and Springfield Townships in Delaware County. The car was running, its lights were on and the radio was even on, but the driver was nowhere to be found. The EMTs called police and when state police arrived at the scene, they found a number of disturbing pieces of evidence initially they saw the tire iron and blood pool that i already mentioned there was also blood on the guardrail and there was damage to the back bumper of the car the scene led police to believe that what had happened here happened fast and it happened violently somebody was attacked and abducted and it all happened very quickly So the police run the license plate, and they discover the car belonged to a woman named Gail Willard of Brookhaven, Pennsylvania. Gail was divorced. Her ex-husband, Paul, lived nearby in Chester, and he was a police sergeant. Now, on the evening of June 19th, their daughter, Amy, who was 22 at the time and home for the summer from college, she was going to George Mason University in Virginia, borrowed her mom's car to go to Smokey Joe's Bar on Lancaster Avenue in Wayne. That night, Amy met some of her old friends from high school at Smokey Joe's around 1030, And she left the bar alone about 1.30 in the morning, according to her friends. She hadn't even had one full beer in three hours, so she was perfectly fine to drive home. This isn't a situation where she pulled over because she felt like she couldn't drive and then called somebody to pick her up. So that morning on the 20th, the police had the horrific job of telling Amy's family that they found her car and Amy was missing. One of the things that breaks me up so much about Amy's story and her murder is where her car was found she was maybe 10 minutes from home when she was abducted the exit ramp is only a few miles from where she lived and the fact that she had gotten off the blue route she's almost home and then this happens and amy god you could not write a story like hers when people think of the all-american girl it is amy willard she was adorable and she had a sea of freckles that spread across her nose and her cheeks She was a star athlete in high school at the Academy of Notre Dame in Villanova and at George Mason University. She was there on a soccer scholarship. And then, as if that isn't awesome enough, she played two sports when George Mason started a lacrosse program. She was a recipient of so many awards and titles for her athletic abilities. And anybody that talked about Amy described her as a good kid, a good friend, a good daughter, a good sibling, a good student. And she was about to head into her senior year at George Mason in the fall and then her light was just snatched away before she even had a chance. The next day on June 21st, as police continued to search the area where Amy's car was abandoned, they found two discarded articles of clothing about a half a mile away. One was underwear and the other was a pair of sneakers. Her mom, Gail Willard, confirmed these were Amy's and she also told police the damage to the rear bumper hadn't been there when Amy left the house in Gail's car the night before. I cannot imagine having to look At a pair of my daughter's underwear to authenticate that they're hers and the other fucked up thing about Amy's underwear and sneakers is that they were clean there was no dirt on them and you absolutely would have expected to find dirt or dust or you know something from the brush of the area because it was woodsy and just so filled with dirt what the police took that to mean was that whomever abducted Amy returned to the scene to plant those items there was a light rain the night before so they should have had some dirt something on them so of course police check surveillance footage from smoky Joe's and nearby mini marts and Mac machines Ugh. I mean ATMs. sorry guys in Philly we call it Mac or I don't know maybe I'm the only person who still does but I do but Macs are ATMs and there was no evidence of Amy stopping anywhere after she left the bar so the police and and that's both local and state police they jump on Amy's disappearance they make a fast and furious plea to the community through Philadelphia news stations to please contact them with any information about Amy, any sightings of Amy, and that same morning that they found her underwear and sneakers, the day after her abandoned car was found, Amy's body is discovered. There was a Nike logo tattooed on her ankle, which Amy's parents identified. That was the hardest day of the whole thing, not knowing where she was. There was more of a relief when they found her body in Philadelphia that i had her back that we could find out help to find out what happened to her no one could bring her back to life but at least i had her two little boys walking through an abandoned lot in north philadelphia on the corner of 16th and indiana see the body of a naked girl and it's amy amy's cause of death was ruled as multiple blunt force injuries to her skull and her face so now we know why there was a bloody tire iron next to her car there were other injuries that I will not repeat other than to say she had been sexually assaulted. Based on the medical examiner's findings, Amy Willard died around 7 a.m. on the morning of June 20th, which was about five hours after she was abducted from the Blue Root. And she had bruises on her hands from probably trying to defend herself from the blows to her head. The medical examiner was able to recover DNA so that eventually when suspects were identified they would be able to rule someone in or someone out as Amy's killer and you know here's where it gets twisted of course because this is twisted Philly within the first week or two after Amy was found the creepy bullshit leads that started coming out of Delaware County were a mess the first one was a kid who had a run-in with cops before his name was Andrew Kopak, and he had a run-in with cops because he used to impersonate police officers he had one of those spinny lights and god I don't know you could probably get them on Amazon now and he would set it up on his dashboard, and at one point he actually pulled somebody over, like he had the balls to pull over another car, get out, flash a fake badge, and tell the woman that she was being pulled over because she was swerving while driving. So Andrew Kopak said he was driving on 476 and saw Amy's abandoned car. The second witness that steps up, and and this guy is a cop, an actual cop, he's an off-duty state trooper, he says he saw a police car pull up behind Amy's car on the exit ramp of the Blue Route, that he was on that road at that time of night, and that he actually stopped and spoke to the officer. So that seems like it's going to be a pretty promising lead. Well, as it turns out, it was entirely made up because he was in a different location when he claimed to have been talking to a police officer behind Amy Willard's car the third witness comes forward and this is another police officer he says he saw Amy's car and he spoke to the off-duty EMTs who found the abandoned vehicle well the EMTs are like no there was no police officer here with us we didn't talk to anybody and then this cop admits he lied and then resigns at least initially the police think they've got three persons of interest all of them have really strange coincidental yet circumstantial ties to Amy Willard's family The first guy, the one who likes to impersonate cops, he works in a neighborhood in North Philly not too far from where Amy's body was found. The second man, the off-duty state trooper, he lived just a few blocks from Amy and her mother. And then the last guy, again another cop, was often at the hospital where Amy's mom, Gail Willard, worked as an ER nurse. But there's no evidence tying any of these men to the crime scene, there's no DNA matches, and the tires on their cars don't match the tire prints that were left at the crime scene. So each one of these is ruled out, and no one is charged for the life of me I could not find any details as to why these assholes came forward to say that they knew things about this case when they didn't and believe me being a local I dug I really wanted to get this one right twisters for Amy and I went down a rabbit hole of research and came up empty on these three things other than to offer my own opinion and that opinion is I think some people are just twisted fucks who get off on the idea of being in the spotlight I think the reason I get so emotional between crying and and frustrated you can probably hear some of the anger in my voice maybe a little more anger than you're used to hearing in Twisted Philly is that I remember so much about this case so many aspects of it were my stomping ground either where I hung out where my friends were where I would drive to get to my mother's house or my apartment Smokey Joe's was a bar that one of my best friends and I used to frequent in the 90s before I moved up to Fort Washington Amy wasn't much younger than me and my friends when she was killed I don't understand why this happened to Amy I don't understand why anything like this happens when people are brutally murdered the other problem was because the witnesses and the initial persons of interest were police or people who pretended to be police Philadelphia News was warning young women about being pulled over by unmarked police cars I remember my ex-husband telling me don't you stop if a cop flashes his lights you do not pull over call 911 and they will verify if it's an actual cop you just keep driving until 911 tells you if it's real I never had to do that, but that's the feeling and sense that we all had after Amy was killed. And again, selfish, selfishly, that was nothing, absolutely fucking nothing compared to what the Willard family was experiencing. Now that her body had been discovered, at least her family was able to bury their daughter, which no parent should ever have to do. But they had no idea what happened to her, and the investigation stalled for almost a year. In May 1997, a young woman named Patty Jordan was driving home between midnight and 1 a.m. on another highway near Philadelphia, Route 95. She was on her way home after a night out with friends. The crazy thing about Patty is that she and her situation were even more similar to Amy's than you might imagine. Besides driving late at night alone on a Philly highway, Patty was also the daughter of a cop and she was the daughter of a nurse. She sees a car in her rear view mirror it's getting really close to the back of her car at one point this car stops stops on 95 which is like a massive four-lane highway on each side and granted at this time of night it's probably empty but no one just stops in the middle of a highway so patty shifts lanes to get away from this guy and he changes lanes right along with her he gets behind her again she pulls off the highway and stops at a red light at the end of the exit ramp and the car pulls up behind her and bumps her car. Then he motions for her to pull over, but she won't. When the light changes, Patty starts driving and the car pulls around her to turn away, but not before Patty manages to get his license plate number. And at the next light, that car must have made the light and I didn't, and that's where he hit my car. I just went and he motioned for me to pull over and I was like, hit my car. just like pull over pull over and it turned green and i just kept on going and my headlights shone on his license plate and that's how i got his license plate and since her father was a police officer actually a sergeant at the time in philadelphia patty gives the plate number to her father and tells him what happened when he hears patty's story he wonders if something like this could have happened to amy willard so her father runs the plate and it comes back registered to a man named arthur bomar who is arthur bomar arthur bomar is a convicted murderer Arthur Bomar is a convicted murderer who went to jail in Nevada in 1979 after killing someone in a parking lot over a fight about a woman. Arthur Bomar was paroled 11 years later in 1990 and slipped through the parole cracks in Nevada. He moved back to Warrington, Pennsylvania in Bucks County where his mother lived. Arthur Bomar was someone who sees himself as being desirable to women, especially young, smart women, and he's someone who loses his shit when he's rejected. Shortly after moving back to Pennsylvania in 1990 Bomar met a woman named Teresa Thompson now he met her because he helped her when her car got stuck in Warrington Pennsylvania they became fast friends and she soon learned that this man who seemed charming at first had a violent and abusive side about a month after they met and they weren't dating you know her family says they were more like good friends Arthur was charged with attempted murder of Teresa because she went out one night when she told him she was staying in and he followed her to where she went out with friends The attempted murder charges were dropped when Teresa Thompson died from a drug overdose in 1991. A little while later, he married a woman from Pennsylvania named Joyce who was a nursing assistant at Doylestown Hospital, and so eventually, Arthur got a job there as well, But he was fired in 1994. He was under suspicion for the rape of a young woman who attended the Philadelphia College of Textiles and Science. He was also accused of stalking dozens of women. He would break into their cars, steal clothing or some other personal item that they had left behind. Eventually, the personal items of almost 40 women were found in a storage locker in his name. So I guess... It's a good thing he got fired from Doylestown Hospital in 1994, so he had all this time on his hands to stalk and assault women. Okay, twisters, I guess I just put some of that sassy sarcasm back into this episode. While he was married to Joyce, he was also engaged to somebody. He was engaged to a woman named Mary Rumor from Olney, Philadelphia, and then he was dating a woman that he met at Wawa. Okay, I'm trying to keep this episode serious, but I want to take a moment and tell you out-of-towners about Wawa. Wawa is the greatest store ever invented. It is more than a convenience store Wawa is a way of life for us here in Philly there is no other convenience store more amazing and wonderful as Wawa when I used to drink coffee which I haven't done for about eight years yeah right could you imagine this on coffee (laughs) you don't want to know but When I used to drink coffee, their coffee was the best. And it was only like a buck and maybe $2 for the really, really huge one. And they have all the fancy flavors and additives that you can imagine. So like, fuck Starbucks. If you're in Philly and you want coffee, go to Wawa. Okay, back to Arthur Beaumair. So there's a convicted murderer with a rap sheet full of other charges, mostly against women, who followed Patty Jordan in May of 1997 for miles on a highway in the middle of the night around 1 a.m., He bumped her car with his car. He tried to get her to pull over. So her father reaches out to the detectives in Amy Willard's case, detectives Greg Seltzer and Charles List. And between the three of them, they agree that it's absolutely possible something like this could have happened to Amy. Someone could have bumped her car as she was exiting 476. She stopped. She got out of the car to check for damage. And that's when he attacked with the tire iron. So, of course, the detectives, they need to have a conversation with Arthur Bomar, but they can't find him. And would you like to know why they can't find him? because he is in jail for another crime. This asshole was caught breaking into the second story window of a home in Ardmore. The homeowner sees him hanging out of her house and called police and this idiot when the police get there he tries to say that he did not do this but people saw him hanging out of her window I'm sorry if it just got really loud but I'm losing my shit. Ardmore is another town off the main line, off of Lancaster Avenue, not far from Smokey Joe's Bar. When the police arrive, Beaumont has keys to a car in his pocket and they're the keys to a Honda and there's a black Honda Civic down the street. So the police check it out, the keys match. But when they run the plate, remember this is the plate that Patty Jordan copied down. When they run the plate, the plate is registered to Arthur Bomar, but it's registered to a green Ford Escort. So it's his plate, but it's not his car. The car belongs to a woman named Maria Cubonis. Maria was a 25-year-old Philadelphia resident who went missing about three months before Bomar was caught breaking into the home in Ardmore. Police believe Maria Cubonis was also abducted from Route 476, the Blue Route, the same highway where Amy was abducted. All of these pieces, his history, his record in Nevada, the crimes in Pennsylvania, the cars, where he frequents, they're all starting to add up. Arthur Bomar is arrested on June 5th for the break-in in in Ardmore, and it's discovered he has an outstanding warrant for parole violation, which, you know, has just been sitting there for six fucking years since he left Nevada when he got paroled for second-degree murder. Why he got let out on a life sentence murder charge in Nevada. I have no idea. While he's in jail for the break-in in Ardmore, police question him about Amy Willard's murder. Bomar admits he was at Smokey Joe's the night of Amy's abduction. He tells police that he did own a green Ford Escort until sometime earlier this year when he had a car accident and that he frequently drives on the Blue Route. While Arthur Bomar is in jail, and police are conducting the investigation of him, the women in his life start to turn on him because through the investigation, it comes out that he has more than one woman. They start telling stories about his violent personality and how he can turn in a split second from being Mr. Nice Guy to being Mr. Monster. And in fact, his fiance tells police that Arthur Beaumar admitted to her that he killed Amy Willard. But that's not enough to charge him with murder. They have to find his original car, the green Ford Escort, the one he was driving when Amy was abducted turns out he was in an accident sometime earlier in 1997 and the car was towed to a shop called Colmar Auto Service in Montgomery County Pennsylvania so detectives List and Seltzer contact Colmar Auto and they're not expecting Bomar's car to still be there right your car gets towed you don't go pick it up you don't pay for repairs it's probably gonna get I don't know impounded or sold but it's there it's been sitting in an overgrown patch of land next to the shop so the police come with a forensic crew and they take that car apart piece by piece they remove the doors they separate the doors panels they remove the rugs they remove the tires anything you can take off of that car they take apart and the evidence starts piling up the Firestone tires not only the make model but year and wear patterns match the tire marks that were left at the crime scene Amy Willard's blood was found inside the passenger door panel and under the carpet and there are bumps and scratches on the front bumper of Arthur Bomar's car from his bump and stop MO so they get the car hooked up to a tow truck and as the car is being raised up one of the detectives yells stop because now he can see the undercarriage of the car when Amy's body was found besides the obvious injuries There was a strange pattern on her torso and when police showed her mother she identified it as a burn she thought amy had been burned with something the pattern of the mark on amy's torso were like diamonds within an x within a rectangle and the reason the detective yells stop is because this exact same pattern is seen on the bottom of the oil pan on the undercarriage of arthur bomer's ford escort as if everything else he did wasn't bad enough he ran her over the police had enough evidence to get a DNA sample from Arthur Bomar, and his DNA was a match for the evidence taken from Amy's body. All of this adds up to a slam dunk case. Bomar is charged with first-degree murder, aggravated assault, kidnapping, and the abuse of a corpse. The prosecutors offer him an opportunity to avoid a death penalty if he'll tell them of his involvement in anything he knows about the whereabouts of Maria Cubonis. He doesn't say shit, so they leave the death penalty on the table. On October 1st, 1998, a little over two years since Amy Willard's death, Arthur Bomar is convicted on all charges. And then on December 4th of that same year, a Delaware County jury sentences him to death. There were a lot of circumstances for them to consider when agreeing to the death penalty. Amy was killed during the perpetration of a felony. Arthur Bomar had a significant history of violence, and he was already convicted of another murder. At the sentencing hearing, he flipped off Amy's family. I wish I could tell you this cretinous scum is dead but I can't. Bomar filed his first appeal in 1999 claiming he had ineffective trial cancel. That appeal was denied. There were a couple more appeals in 2003, 2004, and 2005 and while I read the actual legal documents I didn't have a clue what some of that stuff meant. I like to consider myself an intelligent person. At this moment, I'm wondering if the Court Junkie podcast would maybe do a mini episode with me about these appeals. Court Junkie podcast is a great new podcast from someone who is really good at explaining court cases and not just explaining them, but getting you to feel like you're in it because sometimes she goes to them. She's really smart and it's a really interesting show. So I'm going to reach out to her after I finish recording this episode and see if maybe she's interested and check out her show. While I didn't understand the nature of what some of those appeals were over the three years what I did understand was that those appeals were also denied he files another appeal in 2006 like Jesus guy give it up and that appeal was that he should have been found incompetent to stand trial in 1998 that appeal was denied over the course of the next six years he filed appeals saying he was never Mirandized also untrue. When he was questioned in June of 1997 about Amy Willard's murder, he tried to stop detectives from reading him his Miranda rights. And the detective explained, whether you know your rights or not, I have to read this to you. And then the detective started at the beginning again and read him his complete Miranda rights. By 2012, the county had denied all appeals and upheld Arthur Bomar's death sentence. And when he and his attorneys tried to appeal at the state level, they were denied by the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court. At some point, I'll do maybe an update or a mini bonus episode regarding what activity they might have been attempting at the federal level. So here we are in 2016, and this guy is still alive. The fact that he was even in Pennsylvania at all makes me think of Dante in Clerks. Okay, I'm a huge Kevin Smith fan. Clerks is one of my all-time favorite movies. So if you've never seen Clerks, Dante is this character that works at a convenience store. And he has to come in on his day off. And all of this dumb shit happens to him all day long. And all day, he just keeps saying, I wasn't even supposed to be here. Well, you know what? Bomar wasn't even supposed to be here in Pennsylvania. He was supposed to be in Nevada, and I'm sorry Nevada Not like I would want him to kill anyone out there But you should have done your job We out here in Pennsylvania should have done our job when Nevada and Pennsylvania went back and forth on oh should we keep him here? Should we extradite him? What do you guys want to do? Who's going to be responsible for him ultimately the states agreed that the situation could be managed here in Pennsylvania but clearly it wasn't managed where Amy Willard and Maria Cubonis would be alive in the years immediately following her death the overgrown vacant lot in North Philly where Amy's body was found had been turned into a park the Willard family the Hero Community Center residents of that North Philadelphia neighborhood around 16th and Indiana worked together to create a memorial and a place where something good could grow there were benches for picnics there was a fire pit where families could barbecue and a stone memorial to Amy and over the the years the benches and tables would get stolen repeatedly. The fire pit was used for more nefarious purposes and by 2012 the lot looked much like it had in 1996. It was scary, it was overgrown, it was unattended and it was unwanted. I actually took a ride out to 16th in Indiana earlier this week and while the lot is still vacant, someone has taken it over. Someone has done a terrific job cleaning it up and it actually looks like it could be a park. It has a huge chain link fence with um, barbed wire at the top so you'd be a park with a chain link fence with barbed wire around it, but the lot is actually for sale. Hopefully a developer will step in and buy the land, maybe build a couple of houses And that would probably help the residents on Indiana Avenue. In recent years, Amy's family continued to work with Hero Community Center of North Philadelphia and Jason Collar. Jason is one of the boys who found Amy back in 96, and now he's a grown man. They've hosted coat drives and toy drives in Amy's name for the community center. They've raised money. They've prepared and served Thanksgiving dinners. You know, I look at the strength of this family, and I am overwhelmed with awe and wonder. And the legacy of Amy lives on with so many other young athletes. George Mason University Student Athlete Banquet annually awards the Amy Willard Commemorative Award to a student who best exemplifies what were Amy's standards of quality as an athlete and their intensity, consistency, purpose, achievement, and teamwork. The U.S. Lacrosse Women's Division National Tournament annually gives out an Amy Willard Award and there's an Amy Willard National Collegiate Player Award by the National College Athletic Association. As if all that isn't special enough, there's the Amy Willard Endowment Scholarship Fund, which raises money for non-violence education and focuses on victims' rights. And it was through this fund that Amy's mother, Gail Willard, along with Congressman Doug Ose of Sacramento, Congressman Matt Salmon of Arizona, and Senator Rick Santorum worked to pass Amy's law in October 2000 to keep violent criminals in prison. This legislation was endorsed by Mark Klass, Polly Class's father, by Fred Goldman, who's Ron Goldman's father, the National Fraternal Order of Police, plus over 30 victims Victims' Rights Organization and what Amy's Law does is it provides funding to states that convict a murderer, a rapist, or a child molester if that criminal had previously been convicted of the same crime in a different state and then what it does is it deducts the costs of prosecuting and incarcerating the criminal from the federal funds that would have gone to the first state and instead sends them to the state that obtained the second conviction, hopefully enabling that second state to keep this person in prison for as long as they are supposed to be behind bars. Amy's mother, Gail, has been a constant advocate for victims' rights since her daughter's death in 1996. And here we are, close to the end of our tale. Just before I started recording, my daughter could tell I was upset, and she asked me why Amy's story upsets me so much. So I talked to her about a lot of what is included in this episode. I told her about the places that my girlfriends and I used to hang out, like the Main Lion and Smokey Joe's where we would bar hop in our early 20s, like Amy and her friends. We would drive the same route Amy did at the same time of night, at the same time of year. I told her how it could have been any girl from Delaware County that found herself in Amy's place and that at some point since her death, every Delaware County girl who was a 20-something in the 90s and a 40-something now thinks about Amy Willard I know this episode didn't have the typical sassy sarcastic in-your-face attitude that I usually do it was in there a little bit because that's always in me that's who I am but this episode just kind of wiped me and so some of you may be like well then why the hell did you tell it you can't talk about Philadelphia and not talk about Amy Willard you can't talk about something that rocked so many of us and I think what it did was it shattered this sense of security that that a lot of people had living in the suburbs let's just be honest right for some reason if you're living in the suburbs you think oh we're above it all we're beyond it all that's not you know crime well bullshit there's crime there's drugs there's probably more of it you just don't see it and I think it's important to tell that story I think it's important to tell Amy's story it's important to talk about the changes in legislation as a result of Amy's story and you know something that I think we all have sometimes it's very easy to focus on ourselves and not step outside ourselves to consider what somebody else might be going through or what somebody else might be experiencing or why there's an abandoned car on the side of the road and maybe to take a minute and think about whoever it was that had that car before they left it there and hope that they're okay I appreciate you guys bearing with me on this one twisters it's not my typical tone I promise the next one's gonna be a lighter sweet Jesus I need something lighter and although I said I didn't do any what-ups I kind of did I did Wawa I did court junkie podcast please check her out and to Amy to you your family your mother you all were and continue to be inspirations to so many of us in Twisted Philly I know your legacy will continue to live on in this area ciao for now twisters